Well, wasn't that a cheery way to get things started? Welcome to the program. I am Dr. Paul. Yes, we wanted to play Taps. Declaring our defeat here in the good old USA. As we've decided to go with $34 trillion in debt. And we think we're going to recover. Just saw that today. And it's part of a worldview. That's what we talk about here. Dr. Paul's worldview. What makes us, or what gives us, our ability to interpret what's going on around us. And all of the representatives that have decided just to keep on spending because they think money grows on trees. Well, that'd be the case. I've got a few billion dollars worth of tree leaves. <laughs> In my front, in my backyard, I'd be one of the richest persons on the block. But I know that doesn't happen that way. I'm not a fool. Those in Congress are. Anyway, welcome to the program where we have been talking about the Christian Constitution, the Book of Romans. Something that well, our fellow politicians, those whom we have appointed to lead the way, will never read. And you know what's really amazing about it? I remember when the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, when they appointed him to take over Kevin McCarthy's place. And if you're not from the United States, this may be way over your head. Please bear with me. But I remember when Mike Johnson took the gavel and got up there and quoted a bunch of Bible stuff and whatever. I was thinking to myself, you know what? This may be the turnaround. <laughs> Just goes to show you that Dr. Paul is not a prophet, that uh, he is wrong when it comes to certain things, and if he's not careful, can be buffaloed too. And I was buffaloed. It is sad to say that when a Christian climbs into bed with a bunch of leftists, all of a sudden his morals and his Bible go flying out the window. It's like, why did you get up there and quote it in the first place? I'm I'm just sad. I'm sad. You know, they play taps. Just a little history here to once again, people around the world that might be listening listening to this. They play taps during uh, military funerals and memorials. The uh, military plays at the end of each day. You know, uh, talking about lights out. Uh, it's, it's, it's time to conclude another day. And uh, like I said, we play it during memorial funerals and stuff like that, you know, to uh, recognize the the decease of those who paid the ultimate debt for service to the country. And I played that here because you know what? I, in my humble opinion, I could be wrong again. America is dead. It's dead in its trespasses and sins. Something we've talked about a little bit here, talking about individuals. But I think, and I'm just, it just makes me sad to say this, you know, that I think the United States is done. I'm looking at the U.S. national debt clock right now. And uh, <laughs> I don't think this, this $1.5 trillion that uh, Mike Johnson and others have decided to go in on, and so many people, or at least some, are upset about. I, I 
I, I, it hasn't even been added to this yet. And it's 34, 34, $34 trillion. $34 trillion. Now, some people have tried to, to uh, metaphorically or whatever, try to illustrate just how much that would be. And some said, well, this is halfway to the moon and whatever. Uh, this may be halfway to Jupiter. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And, you know, I think a lot of it, once again, it deals with the worldview of uh, corruption on a part of those who want to use goodness, do good things with it. Uh, they're using it in a fraudulent way. You know, I, I would say probably of that $34 trillion, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say probably $33 trillion people don't even know where it went. That's what happens when you get a government that has walked away from God and they start stealing and they put it in their own pockets. And I think these corrupt politicians over the course of decades have pilfered more money from its own people than, especially here in the United States, than any people in the history of the world. That's how corrupt it has become. And it cannot go on forever. Now, they want to try to make you think, well, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. You know, debt was one of many reasons why the Greeks and the Romans went by the wayside as a society or as societies. And they were thought to be monolithic at the time. Well, the United States and a lot of people around the world seem to think that the United States is monolithic. No, it's not. It is not beyond the purview of the warnings of God that what a nation, typically as uni, uh, individuals, what a nation sows, it reaps. And right now it reeks as well as it's going to reap of the corruption that is part of its history. And... When I play taps, I mean, I don't want to be a, uh, a party pooper here and try to make people think that, well, he's thrown in the towel and it's all over with. No, I, I don't want to be a party pooper. I just want to be a realist. That, but that said, I think there will always be, kind of like what we're going to study here today, uh, there's going to be a remnant of those who want to do it right. I've said before that around the world, despite the state of apostasy that the Christian church is going through right now, there will always be a remnant, much like there has always been a remnant of Jews whom God has looked favorably upon as he carries out his covenants with his people. And that is a nice little segue. What do you think about that? leading to our subject today on the remnant of Israel. In Romans chapter 11, part of the Christian constitution, something that we've been talking about, or at least <laughs> I've been talking about, nobody else has been talking here, but I've been talking about whatever happened to the, to, to the Jews. I mean, Paul the apostle had talked about the natural man, how he was a, an apostle to the Gentiles, and then all of a sudden he come upon chapter 9, 10, and 11, and he's been explaining whatever happened to them. Why are all of these blessings being poured out to the Gentiles? And since they have been, what happened to God's people? And Paul has been explaining this in chapters 9, 10, 11. We're up to chapter 11. And so if you have your Bible, you will get it out here. You can read along with me. I always encourage that. Because ultimately, if you don't see this in the Bible and don't take it in and put it to practice, well, Paul can stand here and yak all he wants for an hour or two or whatever, and it's probably going to go over your head. I want you to see this. This is something you don't get a whole lot of in churches today either. In fact, last time I went to church, very few of the people who were sitting in the pews even had a Bible. Oh, they had it on their, uh, had it on their Android or their iPhone. Not the same thing as you have it right here in front. Like my Bible, I've got it right here in front of me, is just all marked up. 
You know, you really can't study the Bible unless you're writing little notes and drawing lines, and I get pretty little colors here and stuff like that, designating certain themes and whatever. That's my Bible. It's a mess. And I don't know how many Bibles I've gone through that are like this, and I tried to transfer some of the notes over and stuff like that. Uh, every one of them turns out this way because I see certain things and I want to share them or remember what you should be doing the same thing. So get your Bible. And while you're getting your Bible, let me welcome four new followers to the podcast. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. I hope you'll share this with others because as I have said before, when it comes to the book of Romans, if you study it, put it to practice, it will revolutionize your life, your family, your town, your school, your government, your state. It'll revolution. Why? Because it's about God's idea, his worldview that he has created and revealed that is the only way to life and liberty and truth. It's the only one. I've said before that Christianity is the only true worldview because it comes from God's perspective, and he has revealed this here to us in the book of Romans. So, Cornell Hepburn, 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 there we go, Cornell Hepburn, welcome to the broadcast, as well as this guy goes by <laughs> load operator, but you go by and there is the Connollys. Welcome to the Connollys. And Mawuzi024, uh, his name is Cletus. I almost, almost feel like I'm doing the Forrest Gump here. <laughs> Texas from Cleveland. <laughs> anyway, Mawuzi, welcome to the uh, to the podcast. And Nuno Rodriguez. Don't know where you're from, Rodrigo. You look like a fine, upstanding individual. You're, at least your picture does. Welcome to the podcast. And once again, share it with others. Uh, now, Romans chapter 11, we're going to go through... Uh, I think the first was it, uh, 12 verses here. So I want you to follow along. I'm in uh, the English Standard Version. If you have something that is comparable, I grew up in the King James and then switched to the NAS, and now I'm using the ESV. I have the, all three of them in front of me here. If you have something that's comparable, good for you. Now, if you have something like the New World's Translation or the Joseph Smith Translation, which is not a translation at all, uh, you might want to, you know, reserve that for future reference to show just how far they off are or how, how far off they are and grab yourself one of the following, either an IV or something like that and follow along. You will have done yourself a favor. It says in Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself, speaking of the Apostle Paul, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. 
And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So let's go back here to verse 1, and let's kind of pick this apart a little bit. Not too much in detail. As I've said before, we're doing the less is more approach to this podcast. Not to the point where we're declining nouns and conjugating verbs, although sometimes that is interesting, but just enough to get an idea of what Paul is saying here. And for all you deconstructionists, yes, there is meaning in these words that he is using, and it's because of what God revealed. <laughs> In case you don't know what I'm talking about here, I've been alluding to the deconstructionists out there that think that, well, we can nitpick the Bible and we can make it say nothing well, because the, you know, the author has no authority on what he intends. <laughs> yeah, you keep playing that game and that's going to work real good at, ju- at the judgment seat one day, bud. Anyway, in verse 1, Paul he has this thing about asking questions. It's like he's been carrying on this dialogue this whole time through the book of Romans as he's writing to these Roman Christians. Some of the uh, things that he has encountered in his ministry with others who probably ask similar questions. So I asked then, has God rejected his people? Well, you would think that, you know, given what the Apostle Paul has written up to this point and the ways and the means he had discussed earlier about those that would be saved. I mean, he just got done writing to these Roman Christians about what happened to Israel before, how they, you know, were going to believe. But I ask, did not Israel understand? Of course they did. They had the oracles of God. But you would think, the way they acted, that they didn't hear a thing. Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. and With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. God's going to turn his attention to those people who are not his people and use some illustrations out of the Old Testament, whether it be Isaiah or Hosea, a contemporary of Isaiah. He's going to make people that weren't his people, his people. (laughs) That makes sense. And those that were his people that he had designated through covenantal agreements, and then they walked away, he's going to make them not his people. He's going to put them on the back burner, so to speak. Why? To make them jealous, to make them angry. It's like, wait a second here. These pagans over here that, well, we didn't, you know, vanquish, even though God told us to when we entered the promised land, all of a sudden they become, well, wait a second here. Now, that's our God. No, not anymore. You decided to chase the idols. You decided to get into all the sexual sins, if you will. You're the ones that are out there creating the golden calf. And God kept chastising you over and over and over, and finally it blew up. It blew up to the point where, as I've said before, as is revealed in the book of Jeremiah, three times, and really the only three times in the Bible, where God says, don't even pray for these people anymore. They make me sick. They're disgusting. And what they're doing and sacrificing to the Baals and Molech, sacrificing their children. And I've said before, you know, this is kind of the road the United States has gone down, not too 
draw too many parallels here, but we're sacrificing our kids. In fact, I, I saw a thing over the weekend, and it's not just in the United States, but around the world. The, the leading cause of death is we're murdering our children uh, via, we want to sanitize that by calling it abortion, but once again, it is murder. We're murdering our kids. That's what the Jews were doing, sacrificing their kids to Moloch, making them go through the fire. So God says, okay, I'm turning to the Gentiles. This is going to make you upset, Israel, but tough cookies. You know, I'm going to draw you to myself one way or another, but in the meantime, I'm going to make them, these Gentiles, I'm going to make them my people. But that said, and you see this in the ebb and flow of Old Testament history, every time, it seems like, the Gentiles were, or they, I should say the Jews were finished, then God redeems them. He still has a covenant to fulfill. He has several covenants to fulfill. Whether it was Moses or, or Abraham or David or Noah, he's still in the business of fulfilling his covenants. Regardless of how faithless the Jews were. So he's going to restore the Jews one more time, but not until he is done fulfilling the uh, fulfilling his um, I would say obligation had many uh, covenants with the Gentiles, but he has turned to them as his people for the specific purpose of redeeming Israel. He says, "By no need, by no means." Paul's response to his own question here, the old meganoita again here, that, that, that Greek phrase that you could use with your friends at your, at your, your next party, and you're playing a Pictionary or something like that, and you say meganoita, and they were going, what, what is this? Oh, I guess I win because you don't know what it means. <laughs> meganoita, absolutely not. For I myself am an Israelite. Paul sets himself, he says, I'm a classic example that God has not rejected his people. Solely. He has not obliterated everything he had promised to them. I'm an example. Paul the apostle, I am an Israelite. And I'm going to give you my lineage. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Now that was one of the main claims to many of the Jews. Thinking, you know what? So because I come from this ethnic or familial line that tracks its way all the way all the way back to Abraham, well, therefore God still likes me and whatever. And I guess you know if I just go down and get myself or, uh, circumcised, everything is just going to be, you know, good and clear. Uh, doesn't work that way. Paul made it perfectly clear that those who are circumcised of the heart, those are the true Jews. And this goes back to the Old Testament as well. So just because you were of a familial line that goes back to Abraham, that didn't mean anything. Just because you got sacrificed, that's almost like getting baptized, except maybe less painful. Being baptized is less painful than being circumcised. Just because you did that doesn't mean anything. What happened inside? That's the difference. It's not claiming to be something. It's what are you inside? And you run into so much of that today. I'm a Christian. And there are no outward signs of it. There's no change in behavior. This doesn't mean, once again, we go back to Romans chapter 7, where Paul talks about the struggle of the sin within. It's going to be with the Christian till the day he dies. doesn't mean that. There should be a struggle. But some people don't struggle. They wear their fancy little cross around their neck. And sometimes they say the right things on Sunday. They get dressed the right way sometimes on Sunday, even though that has become kind of at a premium these days. People walk into their sanctuaries looking like bums. And I'm going, how does that glorify God when you've got brand new clothes sitting in your closet? How does that glorify God? Some people say, well, you're just being a legalist. I'm telling you, you go back once again, to the Old Testament and how they dressed, you know, I mean, you're part of the priesthood, New Testament priesthood. Well, the Old Testament priest had to be dressed in a certain way. It was the way to honor God. We don't get that today. We think, you know what, we can go sit our 
fat little posteriors in the pew with our, with our ragged clothes on, when once again we've got, you know, a brand new nor- war- a wardrobe or something that is really nice sitting in the, uh, uh, in, in the closet, uh, the, you know, it's okay. After all, going to church is not about really worshiping God except in words only. It's about how you feel. It's about how comfortable you are as you sit there and read through your your text messages and whatever while the preacher's up there preaching sweet nothings. That's what church is about. That's what it's become, but that is not what church is supposed to be. And the same thing here when it comes to being a descendant of, of Abraham that Paul is alluding to. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin. This is with the last son born to, to Jacob. He's nailing it down. He's presenting the evidence. You don't want to know what an Israelite is that hasn't been rejected. It's here I am. I'm a classic example. Now, Paul's not saying I'm exclusively the only one because he knew of others. He was obviously probably writing to some there that were in Rome, even though probably many of them were converts to Christianity. But there are Messianic Jews that are converts. Paul drives this home by using verbiage here in verse 2 that he had used earlier. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So I tried to point out before, salvation is not something where God sits around on his throne playing Scrabble or Yahtzee <laughs> with Jesus waiting for you and I to make up our mind whether we're going to accept his grand offer of salvation. That is not how it works. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God had the salvific plan lined out and decided before he ever created the earth, before he ever created the universe. That's the foreknowledge. Oh, well, he knew that that person was going. No, that's not what it means. God had already decided that. Once again, Paul has talked about this throughout the book of Romans. We're totally incapable of making those spiritually living decisions when we're spiritually dead. God knew who he was going to redeem before we ever said, uh, Lord and Father. Kind of like we would say to our mothers and fathers when we're little children. We don't accept them as part being part of the family. We don't give mom and dad the permission to include us in the family, or to be born to them. Same thing it pertains to God. When God bears us into his family, God already made that decision. We simply acknowledge it. We recognize it. And we thank God for it. But Paul then uses an illustration here. He says, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? And I think this is great. Jesus did this frequently. Do you not know what the Scripture says? Which is oftentimes an allusion to what the Lord says. Do you not know what the Scripture says? It's the objective standard by which we base our beliefs. And if you're out there saying, well, no, it's just church tradition, you've been lied to, or you're becoming a liar. Church tradition is subservient to what the Bible has to say. It's God's Word. It's not the other way around. And if you really stop and think about it, if you want to flip that on its head, like so many people have, and you want to say that's what Christianity is about, it's the kind of this nebulous, uh, you know, flowing, uh, it's a living constitution, to use the you know, the parlance is used here in the U.S. when it comes to the U.S. Constitution. It's a living constitution. The words don't really mean what they say. We kind of make it up as we go, as we kind of feel better about this and that, whatever. They want to use that same kind of approach when it comes to the Bible. No, the Bible is fluid. You know, it's your interpretation. And the author has no say. 
It's what we project upon it. That's what we mean. You know, that's what the Bible means. It's how we feel. about. No, that's not how it works, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible is not that hard to understand. You know, when it comes to the basics of salvation and the like. But when he says, do you not know what the scripture says? He's kind of his way of saying, have you not read it lately? What it says of Elijah? Because Elijah went down this road, assuming that, you know what? God has rejected his people, and he's the last man standing. How he appeals to God against Israel. And this is found over in uh, the illusion here, anyway, is found over in the uh, uh, First Kings chapter 19. If I can get it over here real quick. And Elijah has just got done going rounds with Ahab and the Baals. And the people of Israel had all but abandoned God, and they were following the Baals. And so there's this contest that takes place. And there's a 350 prophets and priests and whatever of the Baals that Elijah calls out, and they put up these sacrifices. And God, or and the, and the challenge amounts to this, you know what, if, if Yahweh, the Lord, is God, and he consumes the sacrifices, let him be God. And if you're the, the Baals, you know, happen to do the same thing over there, da 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 da, then you're you're the gods. They can't be. They're mutually exclusive because they're, both of the sacrifices are not going to go up in flames. Well, lo and behold, here comes the, you know, the the test. And Elijah calls down the Lord. He burns up the the sacrifices, the bulls on the altar, the wood, including the water and everything else. And then he has the the prophets of the Baals sacrifice. We didn't sacrifice him. He has them slaughtered. Literally, is what it says. Well, lo and behold, after that, Elijah runs because Ahab, being the little weenie that he is, went and talked to Jezebel, his lovely wife, and Jezebel sends out this threat. Well, okay. Well, be done to me and worse if I don't have old uh, Elijah killed like the prophets were by this time tomorrow. So Elijah runs and hides and whimpers. Oh, God, destroy me. Kill me. I'm the last one. And there's no one. And well, then God reassures him. No, 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 no. You know, yeah. The the nation of Israel, yeah, they've they've gone away into apostasy, but not all of them. Obviously, you're still alive, Elijah. But guess what? I've got a whole bunch left over. Elijah makes his plea here in verse 3. Lord, they have killed your, your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. <laughs> it's terrible. It's like, okay, Elijah, relax. You big wimp. What did What just happened? I just destroyed all of these... You had all these prophets destroyed. I destroyed the the sacrifices, whereas the Baals didn't even answer because they don't exist except in the minds of the pagans that created them. And so he says in verse 4, but what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This goes along to illustrate, guess what? God has not rejected his people. There is a remnant, just like today. And I remember when I was thinking about, you know, what I'm talking about here today in this podcast, when I was teaching years ago, world religions class, and had uh, a couple of Messianic Jews. I think they were sisters. In fact, I know they were sisters that attended my world religions class. Some of the sweetest girls, and they had converted to, to Christ and they had a Jewish background. They were great, great students, smart students. They were part of the remnant of the Jews today because many of the Jews today couldn't give a flip 
about their God. That's why I say, you know, today you've got all of this yabber about what's going on over in Israel, thinking those are the true Jews. Ethnically, that may be true. But as far as the land is concerned and the actual true Jews, they're not there. I mean, the, the nation of Israel, right, it possesses a sliver of what is promised in the Bible as far as the landmass is even concerned. So if the Muslims or the Iranians or whoever wanted to swoop in and wipe Israel off the face of the earth, a lot of people think, well, that would be the end of it all. Jesus would come. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, that whole thing was set up, yes, by God's providence of the British back in 1948, and that's all fine. But that doesn't mean that's the final act. Israel could go away into captivity again because of its obstinance, and it could start all over again in 2048 or 2148. We don't know. But right now, those Jews that are over there are hard-hearted. And Paul's going to address this very thing right here in this chapter shortly. Paul says in verse 5 here in chapter 11, so too at the present time there is a remnant. And how do they become that? By the very same theme that Paul has been talking about throughout the first 10 chapters of the book of Romans. And really is the precedent that you find throughout the whole Old Testament as well. Because of man's rebellion against God, the only way he will ever be rescued, and that's kind of why I titled the previous podcast, How to Rescue the Dead, because we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, is by God's grace. If God doesn't act according to his character, being a gracious God, nobody is saved. Nobody is rescued. Nobody is a, is a remnant. We would all be damned for eternity. That God could pull the plug and destroy everybody, not just you know, those that got caught up in the flood, but even Noah way back when. And the same thing pertaining to today. God could pull the plug and say, nope, I've had enough of this. They're all going to hell. But because God is gracious and long-suffering, he's patient, more so than any human being that I've ever known, he is going to redeem a remnant. Those that are going to exemplify him in the image of God in which we were created and intended to be in the first place. We're not even anywhere near that right now. And won't be until we walk out of this life. And then all of the sin shackles and the temptations or whatever fall off. But it's by grace. So he says in verse 6, <laughs> and I've tried to point this out to Mormons in the past, some of the discussions I've had with them, but the same principle would apply to anybody else. Who is of that type of thinking that says, you know what, I've got to co-opt with God, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. I've got to work to try to be on a par with what God has done. You'll never do it in a million lifetimes. You'll never be able to co-opt with God when it comes to earning your salvation. So he asks, or he says, but if it's by grace, he's making this contract. If it's by grace, the principle of grace, his unmerited favor, it is no longer the basis of works. And here he's talking about the law. You know, and so many people don't even know what the law is, but they try to circumvent and go around, you know, uh, the, the grace principle by thinking they can do this goody-two-shoe thing or that good, good goody-two-shoe thing. Oh, I've, I, I don't know how many times I've read people's commentary about their religious life. Oh, I tried all of the religions that I landed on. You name it. Buddhism. That seems to be a favorite. The atheist religion. And, I, you know, I've just had peace. No, you don't have peace with anybody. You don't even have peace with yourself. 
God has been kicked to the curb and you know it. That's why he says no longer the basis of works because the works is pertaining to the law. And how much, I mean, if the law was given to drive us to Christ where a person is saved by faith, then how much better could you get, you know, as far as, you know, trying other alternatives, whether you want to try Buddhism or whatever, you know, that strikes your fancy at any particular point. It has nothing to do with God. God gave the law to drive us by faith to to Christ. What other alternative is there? If you've got a revelation from God says, you know what, if you want to come into the presence of a holy God, you've got to come a holy way, and the law is there. It's holy. Paul even said that it was holy and good. But he says, you know what? That's not how a person is redeemed. That's not how a person becomes part of the remnant. It's by grace. And if it's by grace, it's no longer based on works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It's works itself. In fact, it's nullified. That's what, you know, the whole point of the cross. And some people, I mean, Paul had pointed this out to the Galatians who were wrapped up or tied up by the legalists, thinking that they could attain or merit God's salvation by their efforts. And he turns around and tells them, which is the little constitution, by the way, goes right hand in hand with the, the big constitution of the book of Romans. The book of Galatians, in chapter 2 and verse 21, I do not nullify. To bring up no effect, I don't, I don't, you know, abrogate it. I don't know if that necessarily explains it any better. I mean, to nullify, bring to nothing the grace of God. For he says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Is pointless. And once again, you know, the, 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 the death of Christ, uh, Christ on the cross, at least to his resurrection later on, that becomes the centerpiece of Christianity and distinguishes it from every other religion. And that includes all of the caricatures, all of the counterfeits of Christianity, because they are out there by the boatload too. Lots of religions out there claiming to be the representative of Christianity, and they, some have humongous followings, and yet that religion is leading those persons straight to hell. And some people, somebody, you know, tried to uh, rebut me. He was, oh, well, you're using the uh, no true Scotsman, you know, uh, fallacy. There's, it's a bunch of nonsense, you know, because the person who's even uttering that is committing the fallacy themselves. They're saying, you know what? Nobody can make this claim to be a true Christian, you know, without uh, committing the fallacy that uh, there aren't others. And I'm going to wait a second here. If God has revealed what a true Christian is by being born again, Jesus himself even said, no person can enter the kingdom or even see the kingdom of God without being born again. That sounds pretty true to me. That sounds like the standard to me. And Paul here is bringing in the means by Grace. Words, if, if, they, if they're going to have any meaning at all, is going to point out there is only, there's only one way by, whereby a person becomes a child of God. It's by grace. If, if worse gets mixed in there and we start blending it with our efforts or maybe an attempt to keep the law and all that kind of stuff, grace is nullified. And so is the cross of Christ. Paul then turns around and he says in verse 7, what then? I love these. He's like, you know what? Got more questions for you here. What kind of conclusions can we draw then from all of this? If a person's saved by grace, what are we to make of that? And so Paul then provides the answer because this is something that he's probably been asked elsewhere and something that is on the mind of the maybe the Roman Christians or others later on down the line, including you and I today. Well, you got questions. I mean, there are other questions we're probably going to have as well, but we got questions about this whole thing. It's a mystery in itself how God has managed to do this. But he says, all right, here's the answer. You know, if a person say by grace is not a by works, what then? Israel 
and he had already talked about this previously. Israel failed to obtain what it what it was seeking. This this fulfillment as God's people by faith through grace. They blew it. They even had the law right there in front of them. That doesn't mean all of them did. Because he says the elect, uh, the elect obtained it. See, not everyone who claims to be Israel is Israel. Paul had mentioned this before over in, uh, in chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. In fact, you know what? A person doesn't have the indwelling of the Spirit, as he said over in Romans chapter, chapter 9. <laughs> he doesn't belong to him. doesn't belong to God. The elect obtained it, though. How? By faith, through grace. Paul has made that argument over and over again. And if you, as a Gentile, are going to be redeemed, it's going to be on the same principle. Instead of saying, Jesus, I accept you, I open my heart because of what it says over the book of Revelation has been mistranslated more times by evangelicals than probably any, any other people, obviously. Anybody else is going to read the thing. But has been misinterpreted and say, you know what? I'm standing here to my door. Jesus outside the door, and he's knocking and he wants to come in. If you just open the door, he'll... that is a crock of nonsense. God is going to redeem who he wants to redeem, and he doesn't need your permission. You have been elect. You have been chosen by God to recognize who's standing at the door. Who's even standing in the room? <laughs> like that's almost like uh, doubting Thomas over the Book of John. You know, he's, I'm not going to believe. Yeah, yeah, you guys said he, Jesus. Whatever, I'm not going to do anything unless I see the see see the nail prints in his hands and so on. That's how a lot of people are today. A lot of so-called Christians. I'm not going to believe unless I do this and that. Whatever. Well, you're not going to believe until God gifts you, not gives you, gifts G I F T S gifts you the grace and the faith to be able to acknowledge your God is your Father. But then Paul gives us a clear indication of what happened to the Jews. As God was drawing the Gentiles, it says, but the rest were hardened. You know, that very thing here a second ago we mentioned that uh, Paul said was a, an indicator of a true Jew, that it's a matter of the heart. The Spirit comes in and resides there. Well, those who don't have that blessing of having the Spirit's presence in their life are hardened. The Jews have been hardened to their own Messiah, to the own revelation of God. They're not receiving God's grace unto salvation. This is what I said before. They're on the back burner. They're not obsolete. They have not been obliterated from God's covenant economy, but they've been hardened. Hardened in the sense they're not willing to listen. You know, and this almost goes along, ironically, to the biblical description of Israel in more than one instance where Israel would not listen. They had the oracles of God. They even had the presence of God. And many of them would not listen. The elect would, but not all of them. And then Paul says here in verse 8, as it is written. And this comes out of the book of Isaiah. Uh, once again, one of the most theological books in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is talking about, uh, once again, this ebb and flow of Israel's blessing and, and condemnation because of its activities and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, Paul uses this as, as an illustration that, you know, even though they're you know, hardened and been put on the back burner, uh, they're not done for yet. He says, he, he, get, he gives a partial quote here. 
But I want to read kind of more of the context here, what's going on here, in Isaiah chapter 29. And uh, starting in uh, verse 10, where he says, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, talking to the nation of Israel, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers, and the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men gave it to one who can read, saying, read this. He says, I can't, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I can't read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their heart is Hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. This was the attitude of the Jews. Once again, as God was getting ready to pass judgment upon them, take him away into Babylonian captivity. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Oh, they may get it today. They may gather at the wailing wall, but they have a spirit of stupor about them. They don't even know the Messiah has come. And matter of fact, many of them reject him. Jesus is not the Messiah. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And it, 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 you could say that's carried even down to today. Oh, they see, they pick up their Tanakh, and they read it, and they do their prayers at the Wailing Wall, and they go through their bloodless rituals all around the world. But God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. This is part of the hardening of the Jews today. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes from this revelation in the book of Isaiah, he goes back over to the book of Psalms. You know, and really this is part of the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. You know, this is endemic throughout the whole Old Testament, what God has done to Israel to eventually carry them away into captivity, bring in the Jews, and then re or bring in the Gentiles, and then bring the Jews back into restoration. He's, he's citing the book of Psalms, and David says... Let the table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Like I said, this is taken from Psalm chapter 69, and I'm going to read the bigger context here as well. Verses 22 to 28, let their own table before them become a snare. You know where they sacrifice their sacrifices and the like. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. And many of the Jews back at that time said, peace and safety, all is well. We've talked about that before in previous podcasts. The Jews thought they were above retribution, God's divine wrath, because of what they were doing. Once again, what did Isaiah say? Well, has, is God even paying attention? Who even sees what we're doing? It's not God. He's not going to do anything. All is well. And really what, what David is doing here in this psalm here, he's talking about his enemies. The enemies that were his people chasing him around and wanting him executed. Let their eyes be darkened. This is an imprecatory prayer. You know, oftentimes it is said, I don't know how many times I've heard it said anyway, oh, you should be nice to all of the wicked, you know, you should love your enemies. Yes, you should. But there are certain instances when there are prayers that should be uttered against them because all they are doing is persecuting God's people. Let their eyes be darkened so they can't see. 
and make their loins tremble continually. Nice way of saying maybe they wet their pants. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. God is already dealing with David. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. They want to make the suffering worse. And that's the way it is with a lot of people today. They, In fact, even Jesus made this very point. You know, there's going to become a day when, when people are going to be persecuting Christians. They're going to be thinking they're doing God a favor. They're not doing God a favor. And God is going to repay them for their zealousness. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you, God. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. That's an imprecatory prayer against the wicked, against wicked Israel in many instances. But not all of them. Not all of them. Because once again, there is a remnant. And I I can't stress this enough because even Jesus makes this point in his kingdom address the on the on the uh, sermon on the mount and i brought this up before when jesus says you know the 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 there there's two different gates one's actually a road but there's two gates one is straight and narrow and the other one's wide and kind of wanders away well jesus said there's going to be a whole lot more people that are going to end up you know going down that road of destruction than are going to go through this straight gate of salvation Enter by this by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. David's prayer was, you know, all these people who want to persecute him. Uh, let them suffer God's wrath. And so David says, let their table become a a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution. Let their eyes be darkened and so on and so forth. And what is going to be happening in the interim? Now that the Jews are under God's judgment, have been hardened, uh, what about everybody else? Well, there was, a, there was a method to this, somewhat people think are probably is a madness. Paul writes in verse 11, once again, so I want to ask you a question. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Answer, no. Paul is reiterating what he said back in verse 1. Oh, they stumbled, but they have not been, you know, taken completely out of existence. God, once again, remembers his covenants. Paul is saying, you know, and he kind of gets back to uh, what he had said over at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Sometimes we quote at funerals and whatever that he says, for we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He says, you know what, right here, here's a classic example. The the Jews haven't been completely obliterated or ignored for all of eternity. He says, rather, through their trespass, they're trying to do an end run around God's grace, God's faith, God's plan of salvation for God's people. He says, rather through their trespass, salvation, that rescue, because they're dead in their sins as well, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The very people that Jesus had talked about before, saying they, they I have I have another another people that I'm going to deal with here. The Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ as their Messiah by faith through grace has led to the salvation of the Gentiles. To those who love God, all things work to the good. So as to make Israel jealous. So you got a two-pole uh, effect here. 
You know, the the Israelites right now taking things for granted that they're God's people and really they're on the back burner. The elect, the, the Messianic Jews, they're enjoying God's salvation, but their trespass, their ignorance, and not in the sense of being stupid, of what God's law has to say has led to the Gentiles being redeemed. And for the purpose of making Israel jealous. You know, he had mentioned this once again previously, and I'd read it earlier over in chapter 10. But I asked, did Israel not understand? Of course they did. Uh, first, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And I thought about, you know, the word jealous here. And really, it could also be mean envious. And I thought, you know, uh, how is a person not angry over, you know, when they're, when they're jealous? Uh, and really, they are. Because they're going to feel slighted in the sense that, well, God has given us up. And they're going to start to wail. They're going to be angry with those. And, you know, if you were to go to Israel today and you were to proclaim Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him, you would probably be met with hostility. Now, and a lot of Jews today, uh, even today, here in the United States, are that way. Not all of them. I think a lot of them are passive, don't care. They still think, you know what, I am a part of God's people here, and they're doing everything that is contrary to being one of God's people. And that's by God's design. They are hardened. So they're hostile towards the things of God. But still, even in that respect, God is going to, or has already done, for the Gentiles what the Jews did not do, and has used Israel's trespass, their corruption, their ignorance, their hardening to their advantage. But he doesn't stop there. Once again, the Jews have not been exclusively wiped off the map. They're still God's covenant people. And that covenant, whether it's with Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, has not come to fruition. It has not been completed yet. And it won't be completed until after the last of the Gentiles have been saved. And he makes this clear in verse 12 by saying, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and it doesn't get much richer than to be saved from or rescued from God's wrath, to be able to enjoy life as God intended it before the fall ever took place, if their trespass, their rejection of the Messiah, their rejection of God's righteousness, which is based upon knowledge as opposed to just having a zeal for God without knowledge of God's righteousness, if that trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure, and they failed, fell flat on their face. Now, so many people want to criticize the Pharisees for being way out of bounds, but really, they were the polar opposite of the Sadducees. Sadducees were the liberals. The Pharisees were the extreme right-wing aspect of the Jews, thinking that by living by the letter of the law, that made a person righteous in God's sight. It was a fail. Kind of like, <laughs> you see, I don't know if you ever seen the, uh, the, the TV series, A Fail Army. <laughs> so... Some of the dumbest things. I mean, people must enjoy pain. I don't know. Maybe they say Damascus. I don't, I don't know, but it's called Fail Army. That was the Jews. Amid their, once again, their ignorance, their obstinance, their hardness, they failed to obtain what God said was by grace. Those, or that failure was once again, a rich inheritance for the Gentiles, for those who weren't God's people initially, and now they are, by grace. But he throws in this last sentence here, and we'll talk about this more in the next 
couple of podcasts, he says, how much more their full inclusion mean? And this has been interpreted several different ways. Are we talking about spiritual Israel, those who are also Messianic Jews? Or is he talking about the whole nation? Is there going to be a vast worldwide Jewish conversion? I would say that it's the latter. Paul is saying, you know what, once again, after a pattern that we've seen throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, the ebbs and flows of Israel's existence as God works his covenants with that nation, all of the failure, the hardness, the hatred of God, the hostility towards God, the hostility towards the Lord Jesus Christ will come to an end. Israel will finally fulfill or have fulfilled in it what God had promised way back in Genesis chapter 17. It's going to be a great day. I'm looking forward to it to myself. In the interim, though, Israel's on the back burner. Paul has told us now what's going on. Why there's such an outreach to the Gentiles. God has planned it this way. And God knew about this way back at the beginning. He knew Israel was going to fail, just like he knew Adam and Eve were going to fail. But God, in his grace and his, in his long-suffering and his love, has reached out to save some. Are you one of those persons? Shout a big hallelujah. You don't deserve it. No one does. Because it's by God's grace. Well, the time is up here again. Hope you enjoyed this. Write me at podcast at capro.info if you have any questions. And until next time, take care.